It's season two of Mostly Books Meets. We've got an amazing set of guests lined up for you and can't wait to get started. The team have been working hard whilst we've been off air, both in the shop and preparing for the new season of our podcast. We've got authors, illustrators, journalists and podcasters. It's all going on. So let's get started. Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week I'm speaking to the Sunday Times best-selling author, Lisa Jewell. Over the course of her career, Lisa has published 18 novels with another one due out later this year. Her debut novel, Ralph's Party, was an instant Sunday Times bestseller. And more recently, her books have become bestsellers in the UK and plenty of other countries. Her novels have sold over 5 million copies worldwide and her work has been translated into over 25 languages. Lisa's latest book, Invisible Girl, came out in paperback on the 7th of January and went straight in at number one after three days sales. Her new book, The Night She Disappeared, is due out later this year. Lisa, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. As I said before we started recording, I'm a huge fan of Ralph's Party. It really was one of my favourite books for a long time. So it's a huge pleasure to have you here today. I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood, if you don't mind. You grew up in North London as the oldest of three girls. You lived with your dad, who was a textile agent, and your mum, who was a housewife. What were you like as a child? I was I was a, a little people pleaser. I was incredibly shy, incredibly painfully shy. I didn't like outdoors activities. I liked being inside my house with my mum and my sisters and the TV and a book and games. And yes, I was just a very shy, very quiet, very well-behaved child. Do you remember a point in your life where you discovered books or were they always there as part of your life? Books were not always there in my house. My father was the type of man who read one book a year on holiday, Bernard Cornwall sort of type of book. And our bookshelves, such as they were, were filled with Reader's Digest condensed reads and antique books that he picked up in antique shops that nobody had actually ever read. So books that looked pretty on the shelf. So we didn't actually have any books in our house. But we did have a very beautiful branch library just up the road and my mother was a big reader. We spent an awful lot of time in that branch library. We didn't buy books, but we borrowed a lot of books. My mum used to read one or two books a week, and we would go once a week, and we'd have our little cardboard, you know, those little things in pockets they used to give you back in the olden days, so that you were allowed to take your four books out, and that's where I did all my reading. It all happened in libraries and at bedtime at home. So yeah, so not a, not a bookish household, but there was an awful lot of reading nonetheless. 
that just takes me back when you're talking about the library. That image of having the little card, like you say, and going in and having your fixed number of books you could take out each week. It was a real kind of rite of passage, wasn't it, going to your library? It really was. I mean, you know, the, the first book I remember reading, as in I'm sure I was read an awful lot of books as a child by my mother in bed. But the first book I remember reading was in the library. And I remember it so vividly. My mother was off at the adult section getting her books for the week. And she left me and my younger sister cross-legged on the carpet in the children's section. I even remember the pattern on the carpet. Oh, my goodness. The sort of Axminster type thing. And I found an Anton B book. So the Anton B books were these tiny little hardback books written by a woman called Angela Banner. And they were written so that children could teach themselves to read without any adult supervision. And I don't know if you're familiar with these books. No, I don't know them. Very strange, slightly surreal as everything was in the 70s. <laughs> and it was a little ant and a little bee, and they were very gentlemanly and very, very polite. And they went around the world and had adventures. Unknowingly, as a child, I did not realise that every single word in those books was written in order to teach me to read myself. So, yeah, that was my earliest experience of reading that I can remember. And, yeah, I mean, I think that's an amazingly liberating thing for a child to do, to find themselves learning without being taught as such. Yeah, and the fact that you can actually physically remember where you were when you read it. So it's just amazing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then so then it just sort of over the years, I mean, we we continued going back to the library every week until I was well into my teens. Then I, I discovered Agatha Christie when I was about 11 years old. And I just spent a year of my life reading nothing but Agatha Christie. It's just sort of, I remember walking into the library one day and, and looking at the Agatha Christie section thinking, oh no, I've read them all. <laughs> I've read them all, that's it. And I, I, was, I was lost for a while after that. But yes, no, so the library was a massively important part of my childhood and my you know, development as a reader and consequently, subsequently as a writer, I assume as well. So during your teens, you were educated at grammar school in Finchley and after leaving school you did an art foundation followed by a course in fashion illustration at art college. What did you then do work-wise? Ah so I left my college in Epsom in June of 1988. I left on a Friday and I started work the following Monday as a pattern room assistant at Warehouse which is a fashion retail uh, high street retail company. So I was the assistant to the pattern room manager uh, under Jeff Banks. I don't know if you remember Jeff. Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah, so that was back in the day when when Warehouse was his company. Wow. So I was a tiny junior little person. My starting salary was £6,000 a year, oh goodness. with which I was able to afford a, a beautiful flat share in Battersea Park, of all places, oh. in, in a mansion block. I mean, God, those were the days and we really didn't know we were born. Wow, yes. And so, yes, yeah, so I sort of worked my way up of, at Warehouse from the pattern room assistants, assistant to the publicity assistant. And then I became, the, for a short period of time, the publicity manager, which I really cocked up so horribly. I should never be put in positions of, 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 of responsibility or authority ever, ever, ever. <laughs> so I nearly brought that publicity department to its knees. And then I was, uh, I was asked to leave. I suppose it'd be made redundant, but clearly I was being asked to leave because I was no good at the job. Mm -hmm. I ended up unemployed for quite a long time, for about a year. And then I got a job as a receptionist in my mid-twenties at Thomas Pink, the shirt maker's head office in Battersea. So I was just there on the switchboard, which was fun, actually. It was a really fun place to work. Then I got promoted to be the 
PA to the marketing director there, and I moved to their German street shop, which was fun to be working in German street in Mayfair. Mm. In that environment, I adored that job. And when I lost that job, I was a bit lost and I didn't know where my life was going to go. I found myself as a secretary. I'd never had any direction in life. I'd never had any ambitions. I didn't know what I wanted to be or where I was going to end up or what sort of adult I was heading towards being. And it was at the end of that period of my life that I started writing my first novel. Well, I'm just really interested how you went from those kind of jobs to then sitting down and saying, actually, I'm going to write a book. How did that come about? Well, this is sort of tied in with another book that I'm going to be talking about later, actually, because it was shortly after I'd lost the job at Thomas Pink Shirtmakers that I went on holiday with my new boyfriend at the time and all his pals. And we we'd rented this farmhouse in Gozo. And I took a copy of High Fidelity by Nick Hornby with me on this holiday and I read it by the pool. And I'd always kind of thought I might like to write a book one day, but I'd always kind of thought that I was a bit of a flippity gibbet. I didn't go to university. I didn't even do A-levels. You know, I didn't didn't do A-levels, didn't go to university. I hadn't read any of the classics. I'd had a fairly easy life. I was young. I was inexperienced. And I just thought that's something I may have to come back to at a later point in my life when I've had some actual life experience and reading High Fidelity on that holiday it just sort of opened this little window in my head of thinking why wait you know this guy is talking to me the Nick Hornby and this such a fresh relatable voice it's so modern it's so you know he sounds like the people I go to the pub with on a Friday night he sounds like you know the people who in the characters in the book sound like people I know so why wait And I had this incredibly fortuitous conversation as a result of these thoughts I was having with a friend on the same holiday and said, you know, I've kind of started thinking I might like to write a novel, thinking she might laugh. But actually, she said, well, just do it. If I had a penny for every single person I've ever met who said they wanted to write a book, I'd have quite a lot of pennies by now. Just do it. And, And then she made a bet with me. She said, just write three chapters, see how you go. And if you write three chapters, I'll take you out for dinner to your favorite restaurant. Uh, So we shook hands on this bet and we got home from Gozo. And the minute I got home, I started writing these three chapters. And those were pretty much word for word, the first three chapters of Ralph's Party as it stands today. So that whole thing, you know, there was obviously an awful lot more complexity behind me making a decision to write a novel. But reading High Fidelity at that precise moment in my life, feeling the way I was feeling at that time with this seed of an idea in my head that I might one day like to write a novel. And then just feeling like Nick Hornby gave me permission to do it. And then my friend Yasmin also gave me permission to do it. And then once I started, I found it was a process of everybody I met giving me permission to do it. You know, I would tell people that I was writing a novel and here I am, a redundant secretary, 26 years old with no life experience. And nobody said, oh, really? (laughs) You're writing a novel? Everybody said, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible and was so encouraging. And I thought, gosh, if all these people think I can do it, then maybe I really can do it. So, yes, it was an incredibly formative book for me. And in that respect, I would say the most important book I ever read in my life. Yes. See, what you've done there is you've just completely put the foundations around my theory there. So thank you for that. Though I I have a theory that everybody um, that reads has that book, has a book that they can pinpoint 
that has had a major impact on their life and that's clearly yours and what a brilliant book yes I mean sometimes it's the content of the book sometimes it's a self-help book or a book that's got a really powerful message that can send you off you'll send your life on a different trajectory but with high fidelity it wasn't so much the message it was just the existence of such Mm -hmm. a book that made me feel that I was ready to make that big leap so yes thank you Nick Hornby (laughs) and sometimes just having like you say the conversation you have with your friends sometimes having these conversations that you don't expect to happen just move you in a direction as well which I just think is brilliant absolutely yes absolutely so fast forward to the present day you now live in London with your husband and your two teenage daughters yes and you published an astonishing 18 novels yes congratulations amazing thank you as I said in the introduction, your latest book, Invisible Girl, came out in September last year and has just gone in at number one in the paperback fiction charts, which is brilliant. What can you tell us about the book? Okay, so Invisible Girl, every single book is so different for me as an author to have to explain to an interviewer or a reader. And this one, I'm going to be so glad when I don't have to talk about Invisible Girl anymore because I find this book so hard to explain in a way that makes it sound snappy <laughs> and immediate and, oh, that sounds brilliant. I'm going to go straight on and put it in my shopping basket. But I, I shall do my best. And I've been talking about this book for over a year now and you'd think I would have it down. But before I start rambling on about it, I would say it's, it's a really, really page-turning, gripping twisty turny book that most people who've read it have read incredibly quickly so if I make it sound (laughs) a little bit heavier than that it really isn't so Invisible Girl is a story of three people Um, there is um, Kate who's a physiotherapist and she lives in Hampstead in North London with her husband Rowan who's a child psychologist and her two teenage children Um, one of whom Georgia thinks that she has been followed home from the tube station one night by the creepy looking guy who lives in the weird house opposite theirs. The second character is the weird looking creepy guy who lives in the house opposite Kate and Rowan and his name is Owen Pick and we meet him at the beginning of the book and he's just been suspended from his job as a college lecturer because of complaints of improper behaviour at the Christmas disco from two of his female students which he refutes vehemently but he goes online towards the beginning of the book to try and find some legal assistance to support his defence of these accusations and ends up on an incel forum. I should point out at this juncture that Owen Pick is um, a virgin. He's 33 years old and he lives in his aunt's spare bedroom on a lumpy single bed. Uh, He's very sad and he's very lonely. He's estranged from his father and his mother died when he was a teenager. So we meet him at a very vulnerable point in his life and he chances upon an insult forum and meets an incredibly charismatic guy on this forum called Bryn who leads him in a very sinister direction. The third character is a teenage girl called Sapphire Maddox. She is 17 years old and she is a former patient of Rowan. Something horrible happened to her when she was a child and he, he was treating her for self-harm which she had been doing from the age of about 10 years old and then he declares that she is fixed and sends her off out into the world and she knows that she is not fixed and she starts following Rowan around and spying on him and his family even sleeping in the plot of land opposite his house so that she can stay close to him Um, and the real meat of the story happens on Valentine's night at midnight when Sapphire Maddox disappears from outside Rowan's house at midnight and the last person to see her alive was Owen Pick. Ta-da! So that is what Invisible Girl 
is all about. It's pretty snappy and page turning. Yeah, it's definitely that. You get pulled in really quickly and you almost feel like you know the characters. Um, It's brilliant. Thank you. How did the book come about? How did you come up with the idea? Well, actually, even though it's a story of three people and and a missing girl, the starting point of the book was a guy I saw a couple of winters back walking through the snow one afternoon and there were kids running around throwing snowballs at each other and he just looked really fed up he looked frustrated he looked lonely he looked disappointed I read all of this in (laughs) literally seeing this guy for all of 10 seconds it was a very fleeting glimpse of him there was just something about his demeanor that just captured my imagination and I just extrapolated from this tiny fleeting moment (laughs) into this fully blown character who was a virgin and had some sort of resentment building up about his situation and this was in Hampstead so I pictured him living in one of these strange big houses in Hampstead and so that was Owen Pick so it was actually I wanted to write uh, the, the working title for this novel was actually Creep because I wanted to write about that guy I wanted to be that guy I wanted to inhabit that guy that we all know who's just there's nothing particularly wrong with them but there's just something about them that puts you on edge and makes you think, oh, no, they're a bit creepy. So in the book, Kate's teenage daughter, Georgia, thinks that he's followed her home from the tube station and is freaking out and calling her mum. And it's that sort of, if somebody else had been walking behind her from the tube station, she wouldn't have even noticed. But it's something to do with the energy that Owen gives off that made her feel edgy rather than anything he was particularly doing. And I just think there are people in this world who do just because of, things that they're giving off to the world they don't even know they're giving off to the world the vibe that they create they make people feel uncomfortable even when they're not doing anything strange so that was the starting point of the book wanting to write about a man like that god it's fascinating isn't it i wonder if that man was yeah. that you saw <laughs> he, might, he might have just been deep in thought about something and just been a completely yes. normal friendly guy yes could have an active sex life a beautiful <laughs> apartment somewhere a loving family, all of the above. But for that moment in time, I took a look on his face and and I ran away with it. So, <laughs> Brilliant. Did the novel end up as you'd expected it to or did it go through twists and turns that you didn't really see coming? Yeah, I always leave everything open. I never know what's going to happen in my novels. I don't plan. And I always leave every character and every storyline, I leave it till the last minute so that it could go in either direction. Mm-hmm. And then I let it take me there. So, for example, with Owen... I knew that at some point that he was going to meet this guy on an incel forum and I knew this guy was going to try and radicalise him. But I didn't know until I was writing Owen and getting to those points whether he would become radicalised or not. I didn't know. So there was an awful lot of stuff I didn't know. Like I didn't know, for example, where the hell Sapphire Maddox was until I had to write the last chapters and explain where she was. I didn't know if she was dead or alive. I didn't know if someone had killed her. I didn't know if it was Owen. I didn't know if it was Rowan. I didn't know if it was somebody else entirely. So I had an idea of what I wanted the book to feel like. And I certainly had an idea about who I wanted to people the book with. But the rest of it, pretty much only a chapter ahead of the reader. (laughs) That's so amazing when you think about that, because I think an awful lot of people just assume that the writers always have that vision and know exactly what's going to happen. But it must just be probably a more enjoyable experience writing it like that. It is. It's terrifying. Yeah. But it's less terrifying with every book, because now I know that that's what it feels like and I just embrace it. But, yeah, no, I just feel like... If you've decided what's going to happen before it happens, then you've lost that sort of organic reality. I want my books to feel almost like real life. And in real life, you don't know 
you put something in your diary, but you still don't know if you're actually going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. You can say, oh, I'm going to the dentist on Thursday. And then you wake up on Thursday morning and you've got flu and you say you have to cancel your dental appointment. You can't decide that something's going to happen and then it happens in life. So that's how I kind of play my book. That's how I deal with the, the, the plot is just have vague ideas of things that might happen, but then quite happy just to go off in a completely different direction if the story looks like it needs to go that way. Yeah, and it clearly works. Yes. <laughs> how do you write? Though? Some people will sit at the desk and write a certain number of words a day. Others just see how it takes them. What's your process? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's changed a lot over the years. I started writing as a childless 20-something. Mm-hmm. I had to write all the way through babies and um, what have you, and sleep routines and not having any childcare. And then and I had wrote through having children at primary school who came home at 3.30 in the afternoon. So there have been all sorts of different types of work schedule that I've had to map for myself over the last 20 years. So at the moment, I'm working on a a lockdown work schedule, Mm -hmm. uh, which means that I have my children around the whole time, which is kind of, yeah, for the last lockdown, I had to rent myself an office out of the house because my children were just in my face the whole time. (laughs) And this time, because I've just sort of finished a book um, here at home, Mm -hmm. just doing the last edit the, the second draft edit but all being good all being normal my working day is divided into two so I have the first half of the day which is when I do all my publishing housekeeping stuff so interviews email Q&A's I've been asked to do all bits of journalism oh social media that's a massive part of my job mm-hmm. so I spend about an hour a day on social media replying to all my lovely messages posting things on Instagram, blah, blah, blah. I have to do this. My publisher shouts at me if I don't do this stuff. <laughs> that actually come naturally to me. What well, replying to my readers does, but doing all the sort of Instagrammy stuff doesn't, but I would be in trouble if I didn't do it. So that's the first half of, of the day. Then I have lunch and then I write in the afternoons. And yeah, I'm pretty businesslike about it. I write a thousand words, sometimes more, hopefully never less. Uh, if I write less than a thousand words, I go to bed filled with self-loathing. <laughs> So, yeah, so generally around a thousand words. And then I shut my laptop and then I just move on to the next part of my day, whatever that may be, walking the dog or going shopping. So it's just a kind of neat little chunk of my day. Hmm. Not one of those writers who's constantly having moments of inspiration, thinking, yeah, I must away to my laptop <laughs> and write a few words. I'm feeling inspired. I'm not, I don't work like that at all. That's quite nice, then, isn't it? Because, like you say, you can very much compartmentalize. Yes. But a thousand words a day is a good amount. It's quite a lot of words. In some contexts, it doesn't sound like that much. Well, in the context of a novel, yeah, a 100,000-word novel, write a 1,000 words a day, you've written a novel in 100 days. Mm. Yeah, so in that way, it does feel like a lot. But in the fact that it takes me two two to three hours to write those words, it's kind of not very time-consuming. <laughs> but as I say, there's so many other things that I do as part of being a writer. And writing a book is only a percentage of what I do every day to be a writer. Yep, and it keeps it varied, I guess. Yeah. Given the strange times we're living in, I think we've certainly seen in the shop that an awful lot of people are turning to books and uh, taking that time to kind of relax and unwind that way. Are you finding that you're reading more as a result of lockdown and COVID? No, see, what's happened to me, and this is dreadful, is... I was already showing all the signs of being a smartphone addict. And basically since Corona arrived, I find it so, so, so hard to put my phone down and pick a book up. It's terrible. So the only time I read a book is at bedtime. And even then I have to like count myself down on my phone. I have to say, right, you are allowed 
three more minutes on your phone, then you're putting that phone down and you're picking up your book. I mean, I actually have to make myself pick up the book. It's awful. And, you know, I've been a voracious reader all my life and it upsets me in a way that it's come to this. So at the moment, I'm reading slower than I've ever read. It doesn't mean I'm not loving reading when I do read. But God, I am a snail, a snail pace reader at the moment. I'm reading about a book a month. Oh, really? I'm absolutely ashamed. <laughs> now, I think, to be honest, I think it's having a funny effect on everybody. Like I said, an awful lot of people, it's encouraging people to read. But, you know, I'm seeing an awful lot of authors actually are struggling to write as a result of COVID. Yes. Especially as it keeps going. You know, time's ticking by. We're not far off the year. Yes. I mean, I broke that by renting the office. Yeah, I think if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't drawn that, very, and I, God, thank God I'm in a position to be able to have done that. Appreciate that not everybody would be in a position to do that. But that was a real line. That was a real line. Okay, that was the pre-office bit where I couldn't write. Mm-hmm. But now I'm putting money into this and I now have a space and this is where I write. And I'm not sure I would have been able to write a book last year if it hadn't been for having that cutoff point. Yes. It was like a fresh start because just felt like quicksand that area at the beginning of lockdown when the pandemic started and I know so many writers who really really struggled last year and I think I would have been one of them if I hadn't been in a position to buy myself some space Mm, literally buy yourself some space (laughs) yeah literally focuses the mind when you're paying for the room that you're writing in (laughs) it does so you're not really very much what was the last book you read So the last book I read, technically, I'm still reading it, but I've only got about 10 pages left. And I'm actually going to finish reading it when I finish talking to you, because it is a book that my British editor is publishing later this month. And I adore my British editor. I absolutely adore her and would do anything she asked me to do. So she sent me a copy of this book and said, please, could you read this quickly and quote for it? And it is called The First Day of Spring by Nancy Tucker. I mean, she sent it to me because she knew I would love it. She she obviously wouldn't do that and send me something that I wouldn't like. Mm -hmm. And so The First Day of Spring by Nancy Tucker, it comes out in June. And it's, I mean, it's not like anything I've read in a long time. It's really fresh. So it's the story of a little girl called Chrissy, who's eight years old. She lives in some non-specific northern town in some non-specific period of time. I can't quite work out when it is, and I quite like that about it. It's quite vague. Mm-hmm. And she lives alone with her mother, who is incredibly neglectful. And a lot of this book is fired by her physical hunger. Her mother doesn't ever buy food. So this child is hungry the whole time. She's one of those kids who steals food out of the bin at school and what have you. She's constantly hungry. And she's very dark and she makes herself, because she's numb with hunger half the time, she makes herself feel things by doing little minor acts of cruelty. And this progresses to the point at the beginning of the book. So this isn't a spoiler. This happens right at the beginning when she murders a two-year-old boy. Oh, my goodness. So that's where the book starts. And then it comes to the present day where Chrissy has been caught for her crime. We don't know how and has spent her childhood in a children's home and released at the age of 18 and given a a new identity. So the story is told between eight-year-old Chrissy and present-day Julia, who is also a mother. So that's a really interesting contrast between this young girl who wasn't mothered properly, who was responsible for killing a mother's child and is now a mother herself. So, yeah, it's and it's beautifully written and it's absolutely page-turning. And so that was my first book of... 
2021 and it's an absolute cracker and yes it's called the first day of spring by nancy tucker yeah it sounds brilliant i'll keep an eye out for that so returning to you and present day obviously invisible girl is out there for people to enjoy and clearly a lot of people are enjoying it given the recent sales figures we have copies in the sharp hand on the website what are you working on at the moment then so yeah so it's my 19th novel which i finished the first draft just before new year called the night she disappeared um and i'm now currently just about to finish the second draft and that is the point at which I do the terrifying scary thing of sending it to my editors and my agents so it's slightly nauseating but anyway then all the wheels are on that and that will go running off towards summer publication and the night she disappeared is about a teenage couple called Tallulah and Zach their parents they have a baby And on Midsummer's Night, they go to their local pub. They live in a village in Surrey. They go to their local pub. And while they're in the pub, they meet up with some rich kids from the local boarding school. And they all get very drunk. And they end up going back to a mansion just outside the village for a pool party. And Tallulah and Zach never come home. So it's another missing person drama. So it's actually told from the point of view of Tallulah's mother and Tallulah. And also a woman called Sophie, who comes as the head teacher's wife. The new head teacher arrives at this boarding school in this village in Surrey. And on her first day in the grounds of the school, she finds a sign with an arrow on it saying, dig here. And she gets a trowel and she digs here. And thus the cold case is reignited. That's it in a nutshell. Wow, that sounds amazing. Where did you get the idea for that book? Weirdly. They're all such tiny little fleeting things. And of course, there's always there's one tiny thing that starts it and then lots of other things that sort of you throw into the soup. I was doing a book event in Margate with a couple of other writers. And one of them was talking about her first novel, which I hadn't read. So I was listening with interest because I wanted to know more about it. And she said it was based on her husband's experience in boarding school. And for some reason, she said the word boarding school. And I thought, I want to write about a boarding school. I want to write about a boarding school. I really want to write about a boarding school. And then actually, the book really isn't very much about a boarding school at all. But that was where the process started. I mean, it has to start somewhere. And so I just had this idea of this beautiful picturesque school in a Surrey village with a common outside with a village pond and all of that business. I'd never written in that sort of um, setting before. So yes, it didn't turn out to be a book about boarding school at all, but that that was the starting point for it. That was the inspiration. Well, I guess the next couple of months you're going to be busy getting that finalised and I'm very much looking forward to having that in the shop as well. Lisa, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on. And the time, honestly, I love to, I love this podcast because the time <laughs> just flies by. <laughs> this isn't a job, but I really appreciate your time. And, and congratulations on the news about Invisible Girl. Thank you. And best of luck with the publication of The Night She Disappeared. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me here. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you. And I wish you a decent 2021. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us. Mostly Books.